Okay, folks, I want to get underway and redeem as much time as possible. Once again, we have a, a ton of material to cover, and my perpetual problem is never enough time to cover everything that I want to say. Uh, so, uh, a couple of things. I just want to remind you of this. This is by way of announcement that our Christmas services are Sunday, December 24th, the regular service, 9 and 1030, because it happens that uh, Christmas Eve is on a Sunday. So, you know, we're probably just going to have the, the one, but it will be geared toward Christmas. And remember, the elders have made available to us, this is an excellent little book that really kind of conveys the gospel in the context of, um, of the Christmas story. So you want to make sure that you get this and give it away. Give it away to somebody like this person who needs it. <laughs> and, uh, oh, could you make sure that right there, over there, you see your hand moving? I'll just take a hold stack. Keep your hands up. <laughs> that's not brand new. That's one from the old one. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so we, anyways, these little booklets are available, I think, over at the information desk or sometimes they're sitting right on your chair when you go in there for the service. Let's pray together and let's dig in. We've got stuff, boy. Let's dig in. Heavenly Father, uh, it is so good that one of the great ministries of the Holy Spirit is not only to indwell us, and to seal us, confirming our eternal destiny, but also to illuminate our understanding of the scripture. And I thank you so much for that. And I pray that that would be the ministry that is evident in all of our hearts as we go through this birth narrative in Luke chapter 2, and we learn about you uh, and the work that you did behind the scenes, Lord, uh, to work this thing out so that your divine purpose was achieved in accordance with your divine will. And I would pray that you might grant to me the clarity of thought and speech so that I can make this truth abundantly clear uh, to my dear brothers and sisters. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, what we learned about God thus far from the Christmas story is about his power. Remember that? We spent actually two weeks, uh, two studies on the subject of the power of God Theologians refer to it as omnipotence, but it's the unlimited power of God that he exercises in the accomplishment of his purposes. That's why the Bible always says when it comes to the purposes of God, nothing is impossible with God because of his power, because of his sovereignty and such. And we saw that God intervened in the life of an elderly lady who all of her life, all of her married life, was barren. She did not have any children. And God intervened miraculously in that context and enabled her to conceive one called John the Baptist. And he was the forerunner to Jesus. Just in accordance with Scripture, the Scripture said that they would know that the Messiah is there because there would be a forerunner who would exhort them to make their hearts ready to receive the king, the coming king. And then after that, we saw the power of God where he greets a virgin uh, through the angel Gabriel and tells her that she's going to conceive a child as a virgin. And she did. 
And she was the instrument that God used miraculously to bring about the virgin birth of Christ. And we said the significance of the virgin birth of Christ is that Jesus was able to escape the racial contamination of sin. He entered this world without a proclivity, without a bent towards sin, and he became our perfect sacrifice uh, when he went to the cross. He was completely sinless throughout of all of his life, and it all began on that first Christmas morn. And so now we're going to actually see in Luke chapter 2 where we see the actual birth of Christ take place, the record of that. And I want to learn, once again, I want to learn what I can about the person and the work of God. Remember, that's the title of the class. The theology of Christmas has to do, theology means the study of God. So the study of God and the Christmas story is what we're doing. And so today, what we're going to learn about, we learned about the power of God. Today, we're going to learn about the providence of God, the providence of God. And it's there, number, number two in your outline, page three, the providence of your notes, the providence of God. What is the providence of God? The providence of God is the outworking of God's sovereignty as he works through circumstances, as he works through situations in order to accomplish his divine purpose. Let me say that again. Actually, there is a definition, isn't there? The providence of God is the practical expression of the sovereignty of God in that he works through the natural circumstances and situations of life to achieve his divine objectives. The sovereignty of God speaks of his unlimited control. The providence of God speaks of how he does that through nature, through natural things. One of the things that God does is he works miraculously. When he works miraculously, he intervenes into the natural order of things with supernatural activity. He does things like causing a virgin to conceive and give birth to the Messiah, or he causes the sea, the Red Sea to part, or he causes a man who had been dead for four days to come to life. That is the miraculous aspect of his sovereignty. This is more of the practical outworking using the situations of life. Let me give you one. Uh, take a look in Acts chapter 2. I'll show you two in Acts chapter 2. <coughs> Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> Acts chapter 2. And I want to pick it up at verse um, 22. Now, sometimes we read these and we're just not conscious of the fact that there's the exercise of God's providence here. There's the working out of situations to achieve an objective that he established in eternity past. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Verse 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Right there in verse 23 is an example of the providence of God. It was the predetermined plan of God for his son to go to the cross and die on the cross. 
but there was natural circumstances surrounding the accomplishment of that event. Um, there was the arresting of Christ. There was the call for his crucifixion from Jews and Gentiles. Uh, then the actual act of crucifixion. All of that was a predetermined plan of God. The interesting thing about the providence of God is frequently he uses the sinfulness of man even in the accomplishment of his objectives. This is a sin, what they did here. This is the only honest man on planet Earth. This is the, uh, this is the only person who never committed any sin whatsoever or never committed any crime. And this perfectly honest man was arrested put through a kangaroo court where they couldn't even find any reliable witnesses. And then he was sentenced to death on the cross. But all of that ended up in what? Accomplishing the sovereign purpose of God. Look in Acts chapter 4. This one is even, I think, even clearer. Peter and John get arrested by the Sanhedrin. Um, they're released and they go back to the church and a prayer meeting breaks out. So we'll pick it out uh, in verse 23. Pick it up at verse 23, chapter 4. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priest and the elders said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted up the voice, their voice to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, uh, your servant said, and he quotes from Psalm 2, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise a futile things? And the kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Let me just tell you, all of that is a strange companionship. All of those people that are mentioned there in verse 27 normally had nothing to do each other with each other. But this time they had a common enemy who brought them together. And the common enemy was Christ. And they wanted him dead. So they came together, verse 27. And for what purpose? Verse 28. What's the purpose? To do whatever your hand and purpose predestined to occur. In other words, that whole situation of the crucifixion, Herod and Pontius Pilate and the people crying out for the crucifixion of Jesus was in accordance with God's providential plan for our redemption. And what we're going to see unfold in Luke chapter 2 is also evidence of God's providence because he uses a certain circumstance and a certain situation in order to bring our Lord to this earth. And you'll see it. So... Let's take a look at uh, that page three again. <clears throat> and I want you to look at uh, the last paragraph before we read the passage, before we read two, uh, Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7. I just want to bring this up to you, background actually. It says, unless you're a history Greek geek, not many of you know Caius Octavius. If I were to just say that name, most of you would say, no, it doesn't ring a bell. Is that a new member of our church? No. <laughs> and yet, at one time, he was the most powerful man in the world from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. 
Caius was the first Roman emperor who began his reign at the young age of 34, a reign that would last 42 years. Next page. Flip it over. I want to give you some good background on this. He was the grand nephew and the adopted heir of Julius Caesar. The surname of Julius Caesar. And from that time on, all the Roman emperors would be called Caesar. In 27 BC, <clears throat> the Roman Senate bestowed on him the title Augustus, which is sort of a spiritual title, meaning venerable one or exalted one. And they gave, next little paragraph there, they gave him paramount authority throughout the empire and his subjects began to give him what no man is worthy to receive, and that is worship. So they even thought of him, the Romans thought of Caesar Augustus, Caius Octavius, as a god and began to worship him. Next paragraph. And it was from the seat of unrivaled power. Matter of fact, if you would have asked people in his time, who has all the power in the world? Who is the most powerful one? They would have said, Caesar Augustus. He is the most powerful one. And it was from the seat of his unrivaled power in the Roman Empire that Caesar Augustus issued an authoritative order, that is, a decree uh, from the Greek word dogma, which, that a census should be taken of all the inhabited earth that composes the Roman Empire. Here's the purpose of the census. This census would be used by the Roman Empire to provide a public record of people, their property, their whereabouts, and most importantly, their income. Now, why would government want to know anything about people's income? Well, let's read on and you'll know. Uh, in addition, this information would be helpful as a vehicle for military draft and for taxation. <laughs> What Caesar Augustus did not know is that his supreme command would be the vehicle in the hands of the one who is indeed the ultimate sovereign one and that the prophetic word of God, which spoke of a very important event in the history of redemption and salvation, would now be fulfilled. This would now be fulfilled. Take a look in Luke chapter 2. And in verse 1, what I just read to you is the outcome of this situation here. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register to, for the census, each to his own city. It's required that they go back to their own city. Uh, there would be a registration of them. There would be a registration of their land. And all of this, as I said, was to be used for tax purposes. Take a look at verse uh, 4 and 5. Joseph also went up from Galilee from the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, <clears throat> in order to register along with Mary, 
who was engaged to him and was with child. Now, there's a very important thing that happened here. This mandate of Caesar required that this young couple with a pregnant wife now in her close to her ninth month, very near the end of the pregnancy, would make an 80-mile journey from the city of Nazareth to the city of Bethlehem. And there's some very good reason for that. Not only Caesar Augustus and what he said, but what the prophetic word said about the birthplace of the Messiah, which we'll find out as we go on. <clears throat> if you look at um, verse, I've got it um, in kind of blue print there, purple print, verses 4 and 5. Because of the providence of God in conjunction with his decree, a poor carpenter along with his wife, who was in the final days of her pregnancy, traveled some 80 miles across an arid region from Nazareth to the city of Bethlehem, which was the place of tribal origin for both of them. They both came from the tribe of Judah. Now, verses 6 and 7. And I love this. In the economy of words, the Bible just tells you he was born. It, there's no big, great fanfare I mean, and this is the most, one of the most extraordinary events in human history, which you're about to read about. A God coming to this earth and taking upon himself flesh and living among us? I mean, there's nothing like that in history. And yet the Bible just kind of gives you a, the matter of fact kind of an account there. If you look at the, those two verses, six and seven, and while they were there, the days were complete for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths, probably Joseph and Mary's clothing, and laid him in a manger, a feeding trough, remember we told you that, because there was no room for them in the inn. But there's even a greater reason than that for why he was uh, laid in a manger. Because when God would tell the first people that the Messiah is born, he would tell them, you're going to find him in the city in a manger. And you will know that he is the Christ child. Now, in that city, in the inn where there was no room, because remember, why is there no room in the inn? Because everybody had to return what? If they were from Bethlehem, they had to return by decree from the so-called sovereign one, Caesar Augustus, they had to return to their city. So all these cities now were bulging with people who normally are not there. But God had a part in this, and that was it would make his son easily identifiable. Because, folks, if I were to tell you, you know, there's this couple of, there's a farm out there in West uh, Wildwood, and you're going to find a baby in the barn. There may be tons of babies in the house, but finding that baby in the barn distinguishes them, doesn't it? <laughs> so this is what's going on. Even that is being recognized. And it's going to come up here in a minute, and you'll see the great importance of it. But uh, where it's, we've got the purple six and seven. Let me read that note there on page four. And it was while they were there that the baby was born. Prophecy was fulfilled, and the doorway to salvation was opened, and the Savior of the world would pass through it, and would begin his journey on the way to the cross and eventually through an empty tomb and back to heaven. God speaking through his prophet Micah promised that this event would take place 700 years 
before that first Christmas morning. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It's right there. But as for you, Bethlehem, Erephatha is an old name for Judea and Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be the ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. In other words, this is a fulfillment of an eternal plan that the Christ, the Messiah, would enter this world in the city of Bethlehem in accordance with the outworking of God's sovereignty. There are 327 details about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ prophetically declared in the Old Testament that are completely fulfilled in the New Testament. This is just one of them. There's some more that we're going to see that prove to us that Jesus was indeed what he claimed to be and what the scriptures claim him to be, what the apostles said he was. All of that is made clear by the fulfillment of these biblical prophecies. And biblical prophecy in its fulfillment is nothing more than the outworking of God's divine providence. That's why we talked about that. He's arranged this circumstance. He didn't do it miraculously. He had a knucklehead who thought he was God who makes a decree and all these people have to travel to these places, Joseph and Mary, that's a tough, by the way, we don't know how they got there. You know, you see Mary on a donkey and all that. We don't know. Probably most people in those days traveled on a caravan of other people because it was dangerous to travel uh, in those days. And so they would travel together. They would stay together. They were probably a, a part of a caravan. We don't know if she was on a, a donkey or she rode in, you know, some sort of, um, you know, something. We don't know. But anyways, we do know that in the sovereignty of God, he moved them from the place where they both lived at that time, Nazareth, and brought them to the place where the child would be born. Other passages that are mentioned that would be fulfilled in this event, and I'm, I've got them there listed for you, Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Keep your place in Luke 2 and go to Matthew chapter 1, where I want you to see the Bible saying, hey, this prophecy was fulfilled. It's very good when it does that. This is the story, really, we've read it before about Joseph and his reaction, you know, Here's this man who's betrothed to this woman. The, the marriage has not been consummated, and she's pregnant. And so he's thinking of giving her literally a certificate of divorce, sending her away quietly. So we, we enter that story in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had betrothed, to Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with a child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been born, uh, who has been conceived in her, is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, in this case Isaiah, 
Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Joseph was told, you know that prophecy that he probably was very familiar with, that prophecy about the virgin, a sign. The, she, this virgin birth was a sign. What is a sign? How is it used in the scripture? The word sign is used in the scripture often to speak of a miraculous event that points to a truth. Thus the name sign. It's a miraculous event that points to a truth. In this case, this miraculous event points to the identity of that child. This is the promised Messiah. This is the one whom God had anointed as the long-anticipated Messiah. This is the one who is the Son of God, and this is the one who is the Savior of the world. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, another prophecy. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now let me ask you this, is there any question about his identity? in these descriptions. This is amazing, highlighting without any uncertainty the deity of Christ. This is who he is. And that prophecy was fulfilled at this moment as well. Top of page five, top of page five, the Apostle John captured succinctly what happened on that day. What happened on that day? John 1.14 says, and the word... He used the word logos, word, in the first chapter to describe the visible, tangible appearance of God in the flesh. Talking about Christ. And he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, the glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Only begotten, Jehovah Witnesses try to use that word to say he was born you know, he was born. He, he's not eternal. He's the only begotten. Only begotten is the Greek word mahaganeos. And the Greek word mahaganeos means unique and kind. Unique and kind. Uh, well, let me just ask you, how many people do you know of that existed before they existed here? How, how many people, how, here's a good one. How many people do you know of today that entered this world via virgin birth? Here's another one. How, how many people do you know of came specifically to be the savior of the world? Now you understand only begotten? Matter of fact, that same word is used for King David. God said about King David that he's, he's his only begotten of the kings. Was he the first one of the kings? No. But of the kings, he was unique and kind. He belonged. He was the first one. He was the prototokos, the first one born. Uh, as the king, or the first one honored or elevated, I should say, as the king. So now let's take a look at that under that passage of John 1.14. What was it that prompted this poor family living in Nazareth to leave that city and make their way to Bethlehem? A decree by one who was thought to be the exalted one, when in fact he was simply functioning in accordance with the plan of the one who is truly the exalted one. So the truth behind this historical event is that our God is the ruler of the world. He is the, sov he is the Lord of history. He is the one who governs the hearts of men and the greatest of men. 
I like Proverbs 21.1 that's there for you. The king's heart is like a channel of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. God created this world, and because God created this world, he is sovereign over this world. And when he wants to achieve a purpose, the circumstances of life and some of the situations of life never impede his purpose. Rather than impede, he oftentimes uses his purpose, or the situations, I should say, for his purposes. But there's never a situation that impedes his objective from being realized. So the next example we're going to see of the providence of God is found in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. Uh, this is interesting. Before we get there, I thought I would read to you a story. John MacArthur had a, has a little book. It's really good on Christmas. And it's, it's really dealing with all the myths and telling the truth about Christmas. And the little book is called God With Us, a little tiny blue book. Makes a good Christmas gift, by the way. And it's an easy read. But he tells this story, and I thought it was appropriate to what we're about to read. So he says, uh, MacArthur in his little book, God With Us, tells the story of a little girl who came home from Sunday school triumphantly waving a paper. Mommy, she said, my teacher says I drew the most unusual Christmas picture that she ever saw. Now, whenever that happens to a parent, they think, uh-oh, what did she do? <laughs> Mom studied the picture for a moment and concluded that indeed her daughter had drawn the most peculiar Christmas picture she had ever seen as well. Mom, in an attempt to be supportive and encouraging to her dear daughter, said, This is a, a wonderful, wonderfully drawn picture, but why have you made all those people riding on the back of an airplane? And the little girl replied in her tiny little voice, Well, Mama, this is the flight to Egypt. Oh. <laughs> Our teacher taught us about that today. So her mother said, oh, okay. And the little girl made this declaration with a hint of disappointment that the picture's meaning was not obvious to Mommy. Her mother, sensing her disappointment, asked another question for clarification's sake. Who is this mean-looking man at the front of the airplane. She said, well, that's Pontius the pilot. <laughs> and the little girl, now visibly impatient with her mom, mom said, I, I see. Um, and here you have Mary and Joseph and the baby, but who is that fat man sitting behind Mary? <laughs> and the little girl sighed, frustration. Can't you see? That's round John Virgin. <laughs> so we don't want any of that. We want it to be clear. So we've got the story of the flight to Egypt providentially arranged by God for the protection of this newborn child. So that's a strange way to get you into the story, but I got you there nonetheless. So I want you to look at Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. We'll get out of Luke and go to Matthew 2. And we're going to study about that flight to Egypt thing. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived 
in Jerusalem. Remember, Magi are astrologers. They were considered to be, in the Persian world, uh, the erudite, the astute people with the doctorates from Harvard, put it that way. Very smart people, but they were stargazers. They examined the planets and the stars and the sky and, and all of that. And so they're coming. And by the way, we learn from the context here that Jesus is not in the city or not in the manger, but he's now in a house. And it's about two years later when they arrive on the scene. Remember, I told you that's why if you have three wise men at your nativity scene, you got to take them down, wait two years and you can bring them back and put them back. But because they're not there at the at the beginning, they're there two years later. You'll see this. Verse two, where he, where is he who is the king born of the Jews? That's the question that they had for that. We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod, the king heard this, he was troubled in all of Jerusalem with him and gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what was written by the prophet. And guess what they quote? The passage we looked at earlier. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So he asked the question, where is he supposed to be born? Now, by the way, remember Herod's a puppet king. He was assigned that kingdom by the Egyptians. And he was always fearful of the Jews rising up, disturbing the peace of Rome, which would have resulted in him being kicked out of the office. And he didn't want that. And he didn't want any rivals for his position or authority. And so this had to be a startling moment for him because these individuals that even they would have considered to be quite wise quite intelligent, have made this long trip, probably from around Iran, someplace in Persia, and they made this trip intentionally following a star that was directing them to that city of Bethlehem. It directed them to the city, but it did not direct them to the place, the exact place. And so they wanted to know, and they figured the king would know exactly, and he's as perplexed as anyone else. You know, when he finds this out, he's not happy. He's not very happy about the fact that uh, this one who would be recognized as a king. You might be thinking, well, how in the world did these magi, these astrologers from, let's say, Babylon, how did they get any of this information about the Messiah from the individuals that their king many, many, many years ago, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken the Jews captive? And many of that, Daniel, for example, would have been a great teacher of the Old Testament and the Old Testament prophecies. And all those individual Jews that had been taken, that's probably where they heard about the, the reality of a coming Messiah. And now they have, they're always studying this skies, and now they see this unique star. There had to be something unique about it. Maybe it was very low in the sky. Maybe the color, something unique that captured their attention and followed, directed them to where they had to go. And they go all the way to the city looking for him. Verse 7, 
Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from, from them the exact time the star appeared. They probably said about two years ago or so. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Right. <laughs> and after hearing the king, they went up their way and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was born. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, remember what I told you? After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, the fact that there are three gifts is the why, reason many of us think there's three wise men. But we don't know how many. Magi is plural. All we know is that there was a bunch of magi, a lot of these astrologers. The gifts were only three. So we're not to assume there's only three of them. Each one gave them a gift. I think even in Catholicism, they have names for these guys. I have no idea how they got that. Um, you know, that's... But anyways, um, so there's not... I know you're going to say, what do I do about this song? I love this song, We Three Kings. They're not kings. Change the word, sing. We three astrologers from Orient. No, change it this way. We unknown number of astrologers came, you know, get, just correct it, that's all, and you'll be fine. So if uh, Eden, uh, Ethan chooses that song, you guys can uh, sing it appropriately. He'll be shocked. <laughs> just tell him you heard it from me. Verse 12, and having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. So now this is really going to tick him off. Yes? Where was Herod physically versus Bethlehem? He was in, he was actually, they, if you notice, he, after he was born, they came to Judea. Um, it says there in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, where the king of, from Magi arrived in the Jerusalem saying, so he was in Jerusalem at this time. So he, uh, he was in the city. And uh, so he's very, very, very upset. Uh, but again, let me remind you about the providence of God. There's no king that's ever going to disrupt the purposes of God. None. Uh, you might even find comfort in that as you look at our politicians and, you know, you think, well, these guys are, you know, they're, they're just going to, like you might think, they're, they're going to blow up the whole world. Uh, no, they're not. Wait a minute, you don't know how bad these guys are. I do know how bad they are. And sometimes I wonder with you. But don't worry about it. It's, it's, it's not... The leadership, the leaders, the people in the world, the, um, the kings and the emperors that are going to bring destruction to planet Earth. It's God. He created it. And he's going to bring it to an end. I remember walking into a gas station one time back in Illinois, back in the day when you actually had to go in and bring your credit card. Remember they had a machine? <laughs> Back in that day, some of you may not be young enough to remember that or old enough to remember that. I actually remembered when they only took cash. 
that's up all right. I actually remember when it was 27 cents a gallon. 19, 19, 19, 19. Yeah. Well, these people are older than me. No, that's the difference between St. Louis and Chicago. Oh, yeah. I forgot. Chicago always has a tax on its gas. Yeah. Um, and these two girls were all worried because they saw a movie called The Day After. And it was a movie about uh, portraying a nuclear holocaust on planet Earth. And they were all talking behind the cash, behind the cash register, and they were all like, all really shook up, like that's going to really happen, and you know that the whole world's going to be exploded by nuclear explosions. And I said to them, No, no, you don't have to be worried. That's not how it's going to end. God's going to destroy it. <laughs> uh, and and uh, when He flooded planet Earth, let me just ask you this question: When He flooded planet Earth, did He need to hire any plumbers? No. No, but I know one that was capable. You know one of them. Me, I'd be capable of that. I'm the only guy who hooked up a, a dimmer in my, my dining room, and when you dimmed the switch, the toilet would flush. I don't know how I did that, but it was a great feat on my own. So, uh, No, if you, if you look with me in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, And all of this to tell you or to emphasize to you that nobody on planet Earth, no matter their power, remember this guy, basically on planet Earth, Caesar Augustus was the man. He had all the power. Not really. And even with all of his accumulated power, he was never able to disrupt the purposes of God. And here I just want to show you from Second Peter uh, um, this passage, Second uh, Peter chapter three, and verse ten, it is the passage that convinced me uh, and put my faith in something called global warming. Take a look at it. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So um, I said global warming, but it's actually total destruction by fire by God. That's how the current earth will come to an end, and then God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, and it'll be the eternal home of all true believers. So, but God does all of this stuff providentially, and this is, this is guided also by the providence of God. Let's go back again to Matthew, and let's close that part out because I want to get to the grace of God, which is the next attribute that we find. Sure. Yes? This star. Yeah. God just put that in its place, uh, and did it go away once they found? Yeah, that, those are questions that we don't have any answer to, but I could see that. That might be reasonable that it was a special star God created for that moment to guide them, or he could have used a star that exists to, to guide them, but we don't know. All we know for fact is that it was a star. Now, some guys go into all kinds of books about that. I think I one time saw a, a book titled, you know, The Star That Guides in the Sky or something like that, and um, it's all conjecture. You know, I always tell people as much as we respect what the Bible does say, we must respect equally what it doesn't say. And that's the, that's the hardest part, 
It doesn't give us, God doesn't always feel entitled to give us details about what he does. Yeah, yeah. Um, interestingly, there are, to your point about this time, there are, as you said, uh, write-ups about this. It's potentially like a comet that we see because comets, they come and go. Mm-hmm. But probably what lends a lot more credence to the sovereignty of God is that the stars that we see actually have been there like maybe so many millions Whatever that time frame. Because light travels at a very long time mm-hmm. before it reaches our eyes. So the star that we see right now has probably been there like mm-hmm. thousands of years ago. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about God's timing, it's like he Which created that to move yeah, mm-hmm. for the Magi to see at a point in time which was like in our, you know, in our clock mm-hmm. was like thousands of years ago. Yes. Yeah. Light travels very fast and long. It's all good. You guys are really good with the science thing. Um, science was the best six years of my high school life. Um, I didn't do very well. <laughs> you say there's only four years. Yeah, for most of you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Earth actually spins at like 1,100 miles per hour. What was that? The Earth spins on its axis at like 1,100 yeah. miles an hour. Mm-hmm. And because of our distance from the sun, in order to, in 365 days, make the trip around the sun, we're right now traveling at about 60,000 miles an hour while spinning at 1,100 miles an hour. So God has to take all that into account to make that star yeah. stay in that same spot in the sky. Mm-hmm. It has to be traveling the same as we are. Wow, that explains why I get dizzy sometimes. I, I didn't know that everything was going around. <laughs> I mean, it's, the creation's amazing. Yeah, well, that's good. So let's take a look at what happens on verse 13 of chapter 2 of Matthew. Again, we're looking at the, how God guides things and his purposes. It says, Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until uh, I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. And he remained there until the day of Herod, Uh, the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what God had spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I will call my son. So it's another fulfillment of a biblical prophecy, you know, just kind of guiding us along. Verse 16, then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And this particular passage comes from Jeremiah 31, verse 15. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because there were, they were no more. So even another prophecy, unfortunately, is fulfilled that there would be great weeping and wailing in that city. I can't imagine. I can't imagine a soldier doing that. But I guess that, well, we just saw it, didn't we? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. We just saw it happen over there near uh, in, in Israel where, you know, they beheaded children. I just, it just seems so unreal. But, you know, the vileness and the depth of depravity of man is so strong that they could do that very kind of thing. Verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel, the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, go take up the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. And so that's what he did. He went back uh, to the city and verse 23 says, and he came and he lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet he shall be called what? A Nazarene. A Nazarene. And many people think that that's his place of birth. But that's where he is raised. Um, I, if you called me a St. Louisan, well, that's kind of true because I've been here for a while. But that's not the place of my birth. My place of birth was in Chicago. But my parents knew what was going to happen. They put a helmet and a flak jacket on me and sent me to St. Louis. No, that's not what happened. <laughs> Yeah, because uh, uh, from, from what we can tell, Joseph had his business, and it, in some cases may have been a business that had been in existence for some time in the city of Nazareth. He was a carpenter, and that was probably, and she was living there too, you know, prior to the, to the census where they had to go and go to Bethlehem. So they didn't, they didn't go back to Bethlehem. They probably went back to the city that they normally lived in, and that was in, in Nazareth. Yeah. But why didn't they go back there after the birth? After the birth of yeah, Jesus? They were still in Jerusalem two years later. They were in Jerusalem. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were. Yeah. Well, I think they probably did that also because of the safety of the child. They wanted to, be, to go to a place that was a little safer than the city of, of uh, Jerusalem or Bethlehem. That, but I don't really have an answer to that. <laughs> it's just that's what they did. You know, they went and, um, and that's why he was called all the time. He was so frequently called Jesus the Nazarene. Matter of fact, when we read Acts chapter 2, they said, you know about Jesus of Nazareth because uh, that's the way he was thought to be. You, that's where he hailed from, the city of Nazareth. But he was born in Bethlehem, you know. So. Yeah, it seems like they set up residence in Bethlehem after the birth. Uh, for a little while, yeah. yeah. And maybe because of that, because you got a little child, you know, I'm sure they didn't necessarily want to be traveling with the little child, you know. I used to hate it myself when the kids were little with those, those, all those bags and paraphernalia and baby diapers and play pens and what else did I have to carry? Strollers. All I know is whenever I went to my mother's house for Christmas or my mother-in-law's house, it was like moving in and moving out. But maybe they didn't want to do that. <laughs> so, yeah. Too? Where? They were in Nazareth? No, probably. No, no, they no, did no, have family in Nazareth. Yeah. They, they, yeah, they probably had relatives and such there, I'm sure, <coughs> I'm, I would imagine. Maybe, maybe not necessarily close relatives. But. And she also went, had a child out of wedlock. Yeah. 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 Well, she would be, she, when they went back uh, to Nazareth, at that point, the marriage had been uh, consummated and achieved, mm -hmm. 
because the Bible says, and we didn't read that verse in Matthew chapter 1, that he kept her a virgin until the child was born. Then they had a regular marriage, and uh, they, they were raised in that so area. So is that why they didn't get married? Because after a marriage, there would have been... Yeah. Then people could have uh, argued against the virgin birth and such. Yeah, yeah. 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 So it was, was good. Very good questions. Um, so, all right. Um, I ask a question there. I don't know if we have enough time, but there's a question near the bottom of page five or right before the graciousness of God. And the question is, uh, can you trace the providence of God in bringing you to the point of trusting totally in the death and resurrection of Jesus to save you? Do you can you reflect upon circumstances and situations that happen in your life where suddenly you're under the gospel and suddenly you come to a true saving knowledge of God. Well, I need to tell you, as you reflect upon that in your own mind, that was organized by God. That was not an accident. That's not an accident. You know, in my case or your case, where God worked things out because he was bringing you to himself. Uh, in my case, when Cindy came to know Christ before me, six months before me, and uh, she started attending church on Sunday morning, church on Sunday night, church on Wednesday, back to church again on Thursday morning to study with women, talking with women on the phone from the church all the time about God and Bible. And I asked that question of her, you know, do you love God more than you love me? And she said, yes, but I love you in a new way because of my relationship with God. And that's when I said to her, you, you need to let me talk to your guru or priest or rabbi or whatever he is because I'm going to poke holes in what you believe. I was all ready. And uh, then a guy, typical pastor, I think he was a staff pastor, Pastor John Musser, shows up to my door with his black suit and white socks and a big, thick Bible. Just what I thought. Back in those days, we went peace, man. So I said, peace, man, at the door when I answered the door. <laughs> Remember, I'm, I'm a rock and roll hippie I, at the time, long hair. I had a cigarette, too. I was smoking a cigarette um, and said, peace, man. And he said, one way, <laughs> which really kind of threw me off right from the start. I said, what? He said, there's only one way to have peace. Oh, man. So he, he comes in, and I'm thinking, this is going to be, I thought this is going to be kind of easy. You know, you know, I, I mean, after all, I was, what was I, 23? Yeah, 23. I was pretty smart. You know, it's 23. You know what I mean. Really smart. And so, <laughs> no, the truth of the matter is I was a total idiot, but I didn't know that. I was not smart enough to know that. So then I, I uh, begin a conversation with him, and uh, it, it, he keeps on, every time I ask a question, he keeps on turning the Bible around, and he said, well, what, what does it say there? And I would read it, and I was shocked. I mean, every question I asked him, he kept on showing me from the Bible, uh, including, you know, working for your salvation. He showed me Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and that verse rocked my world. And at that moment, 
I came to know Christ as my Lord and Savior. That was all worked out by God. You had here Sarah Smith. Yes, we have a picture like that. And uh, someday I'll, I'll have Cindy take it out. And one time on my 60th birthday at our church, which was like 40 or 50 years ago, <laughs> we, uh, we took that picture and put it in the lobby and just reminded the people that were going to church that this is the guy who's about to speak to you. <laughs> and all of that was worked out in the providence of God. Uh, even me getting into ministry, um, I, I loved the Word of God. I could never get enough of it. I'm constantly studying it. I'm showing up at church all the time for everything uh, that I thought may have been a Bible study. You could not keep me away from a Bible study. I showed up to a deacon meeting because I thought that that was a Bible study. And they told me, no, we don't study the Bible. No, they didn't say that. But, um, you know, I just wanted to know. I wanted to learn. And, um, and I just could not get enough. And I started working with the teens, uh, trying to teach the teens. And then I got a call from the associate pastor that the elders of our church wanted to see me. And I thought for sure I did something wrong. And so I went to see them and I sat down with them. I was frightened, you know. I knew we had elders, I didn't know who they were. So I sat down with them and I said, yeah, yeah how can I help you? And they said, had you ever thought about going into ministry? And I was shocked. I said, yeah, I think about it all the time. I said, but I have a wife, I have children, I have a mortgage. I have no education for that, none whatsoever. And they said, okay, well, this is what we'll do. We'll match your current salary and we'll send you to school. Now, how in the world could I have ever conceived of that plan? How in the world could I ever thought of that plan? I'm going to go starting, I'm going to start at that church. I'm going to endear myself to those elders. And then someday they're going to pay for my education. No, that was of the hand of God. And one of the greatest moments here at this church was when one of those elders who made that decision was on a business appointment in St. Louis. And he came to see me for lunch. And then he came and he stood in the middle of our auditorium and cried. Because he remembers that decision. I'm sure when they made the decision, they thought afterwards, what did we do? Because <laughs> I was really a diamond in the rough. Um, and so all that I tell you that is that nothing impedes God from doing what he wants to do in a person's life. These young men that come to me and tell me they, they have a passion for ministry, and then they tell me all the obstacles that stand in their way. I tell them, if, if God wants you in the ministry, you will be in your ministry. There, there, a young man that I talked to just yesterday that I've been discipling over the phone uh, three years ago, he had gotten himself into trouble and prison and all kinds of things. And he started attending this church, gotten truly saved. I, know his, I knew his father real well. And this young man got truly saved and very hungry. And he would tell me, he said, I'm not even sure they're going to want me 
to be in your church, in this church, because of my background. And I told him, I said, no, you just, if, if God's got his hand on you for ministry, you go to that church, you study the word of God, you let the word of God, you know, purify you, and he'll take care of that. He called me yesterday, and he said, uh, these people are going to wear me out. I said, why? He said, well, they got me speaking for their national conference. I said, the same ones that wouldn't let you in the church? <laughs> See, because they recognize when God begins to do his work. And they're saying things to him like, I've never heard anybody preach the word like that. Why? It's the providence of God. So a lot of times when you're looking at an obstacle in your life, uh, just keep that in mind. If God's got a purpose, no obstacle that you encounter ever impedes his purpose. And there's many of you who can tell me the same kind of stories about how you came to know Christ and the great difference it made in your life and the circumstances surrounding that. Uh, and you saw it here. It's all unfolding in the Christmas story, right? And you know, so let's just start on the graciousness of God. We're not going to have a lot of time, but the graciousness of God. So we're going back again to Luke chapter 2, and I'll kind of, kind of give you an overview of it, then we'll go into details here in just a minute. But when we talk about the grace of God, the grace of God, we're looking at Acts 2, 8 through 12. Uh, but before we read it, let me kind of bring some definition to it. Um, the grace of God refers on your notes there on page 5. It refers to that part of his perfect nature that inclines him to bestow benefits upon the undeserving without expectation of anything in return. It's an amazing truth, folks, when you study about the grace of God. Uh, there's a, a Puritan named Sharnock who wrote, uh, uh, maybe that's the guy I was thinking of earlier, who wrote a systematic theology. And he, when he talks about grace, uh, the one phrase he that he used that I, I love to use is that it's in the very fiber of God's nature to bestow favor upon the undeserving. That is an amazing truth. It's a part of the nature of God to extend divine favor. And the only qualification to be a recipient of God's grace is that you're undeserving of God's grace. That's the only qualification. And, and, and that goes with mercy too. It's in the very nature of God to be compassionate to the miserable. And it's in the very nature of God, combined with his grace and mercy, that keeps God from treating you as your sins deserve. So we're going to see the grace of God unfolding in this portion of the birth narrative in, number one, that he provided for the world what it so desperately needed, a savior. He could have condemned the entire world and said, listen, this is just such a mess. This certainly did not turn out as I had hoped. These people are trapped in sin, thinking of sin all the time, doing sin. But what did he do? In his great love, mixed with his great grace and mercy, he provides what we needed the most, and that is a savior. And 
He selected a group of people from the very bottom of the social ladder to be the first ones to hear the good news. The outcast of society were the very ones that he chose to tell the first. He didn't go to the high priest. He didn't go to the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court. By the way, it wouldn't have done it very good because 70% of the Sanhedrin <clears throat> were Sadducees. What's a what's Sadducee? It's a person who does not believe in the miraculous. It's a person who doesn't believe. And they were on, ruling over Israel at that time. They did not believe in miracles. That's why they're sad, you see. You know, sad, you see. Okay. It's an old joke. My wife's heard it a thousand times. That poor woman, she sits through these things. You know, no wonder she told me she thinks she's going to go to a different church. So, <laughs> No, she didn't say that. Uh, so the knowledge of the holies on page five talks about the grace. That's, uh, that would be A.W. Tozer. He's Tozer says of God's grace on page five near the bottom that it's a self-existent principle inherent in the divine nature and appears to us as a self-caused propensity to pity the wretched, spare the guilty, welcome the outcast, and bring into favor those who were before under just condemnation. That's a good definition. Mr. Tozer always did that so well. God's grace, reading on, is demonstrated by the many blessings and favors and privileges that he's bestowed upon those who are not deserving of such divine benefits, yet receive them nonetheless. Flip the page. These are some of the things that you have received because of the grace of God. Uh, A, he saved us by grace, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourself. He justified us by grace. Uh, Romans 3.24 says you have been declared right standing with God because of God's grace. He sanctifies us. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 through 13 explains the lessons that grace teaches us about how to be set apart unto God. That's sanctification. Uh, he chose us by his grace. You know, I, I always wonder, why in the world would he pick me? I wouldn't pick me. But he did, and he did it by grace. He redeemed us by grace, Ephesians 1.7. Redemption is um, to pay the price or the debt of someone that causes them to be released from the debt. It is a marketplace terminology. Um, we were... In the marketplace of sin, we were bondage to sin. And Jesus paid the price, which was the currency of his own blood, to liberate you from the bondage of sin. And why did he do that? Because you are such nice people? By the way, I like most of you. Marv, I'm sorry, I'm still working on that. <laughs> But he, he's the one who redeemed us and did this thing. He forgave us. What an amazing thing. Ephesians 1.7 says that we have forgiveness in Christ. What is forgiveness? It's releasing a person from a debt that could be justly extracted from them. 
That's forgiveness. You, you, you and I should go to hell forever. But because of what he did for us, we are liberated from our sins. And he enables us by his grace. The very gospel message is described in scripture as the gospel of grace and the word of grace. Now, let me just read this portion to you. We're not, we're not going to have enough time, but let me just read this portion from uh, chapter 2 and verse 8. It says, Now in the region were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news. Euangelion, that's the word. Euangelizo, good newsing it. I bring you great news, phenomenal good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, Bethlehem, there has been born for you, what? A new politician? a new religious leader, a new philosopher, a new psychologist, a new economic genius? No. What the world needs the most is salvation. So today, there's been born for you a Savior. Now, who is he? He is the Messiah, Christ. That's what that means, the Messiah. He is Lord, Koryas. Yikes, he is the sovereign one, the sovereign God who has a right to issue commands and anticipate your obedience. So is there any question about who this child was? <clears throat> and if that wasn't enough, verse 13, oh, verse 12 rather, uh, this will be a sign. Remember, what's a sign? It's a miraculous event that points to a truth. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, laying in a manger. Ah, that makes it easy for me. I'm just a plain, ordinary shepherd. If you tell me you're going to find a baby, his mother looks like this, she has two ears, glasses, it's, it's going to be confusing to me. But you tell me a baby in a manger, I know I, that helps. And so that's what they were told. You'll find him in the manger. And then even after that, suddenly there appeared an angel and a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, so there's the angel and now there's the whole sky is lit up with angels. And the brightness had to be blinding because remember, they're in the pitch black wilderness in the pasture land with their sheep and it's night. And suddenly, I mean, I can imagine why they were frightened. And suddenly there's this whole group, a host of angels. And they were singing, Gloria in excelsis Deu. No. no. What? Was, boy, I tell you, I ruined so many people's Christmases. I did. And suddenly, yeah, well, and they, they, they were, look at verse 13. And suddenly there appeared with an angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and singing saying, saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now, I don't know about you, but I always get these Christmas cards that say peace on earth 
and they quote half of this verse, they never get that part with whom he was pleased. That's a qualifier. <laughs> you know, that's a qualifier. So um, we'll talk more about that grace of God here. In the grace, uh, we're going to learn from the Mishnah, which is a, a first century uh, uh, rabbi's traditional teachings. Uh, one of the things that they said is that you can never use a shepherd to be a witness in court because all shepherds are liars and are impure. So they would have said he can't be a witness. <laughs> and now God has made, contrary to what people think, the first people to hear the gospel message and the first people to tell anybody about that gospel message were the social outcasts. And I love that because that's representative of the kind of people he would save. Isn't it? He saves all kinds of people. And so he chooses these shepherds. And of course, they're going to run to town to see the baby. And they're going to have a conversation with Mary. And Mary's already had, you know, Gabriel and conversations about this child that would be born to him. This would be an affirmation of the things that she heard. Yeah, this is what they told us, Mary. They said, your son is the savior of the world. Your son is the Messiah. For Jewish people, that was wonderful news. But they had a wrong idea about why he would come the first time, but it was wonderful news that their Messiah had come. You see? And so, anyways, we'll get to more of that. This, we'll, we'll cover this when we meet next week. Thanks for listening to me rant and rave this morning. Thank you, Pat. All right. It's a great joy.